my pleasure this morning to introduce our primary speaker this morning, who will also introduce a friend and colleague of his who will be sharing with us and teaching us as well. When I heard that Vox Lumina had prepared this piece, I asked that they would specifically sing it at this chapel. And the reason for that is because the two gentlemen who will be sharing with us, in my opinion, live out the reality of the song which we've just heard. God is calling out who will be a witness. And these two gentlemen have been a witness for Jesus Christ. The first whom I will introduce is Mr. Michael Cassidy. Michael has been the founder and the president, the leader, actually, I should say, of African Enterprise for many, many years. African Enterprise is, in my thinking, one of the networks of friends in Jesus Christ, which has had perhaps some of the most profound influence on the continent of Africa for the kingdom of God that I know of. Much of what you've heard about in the newspapers about the country of South Africa, there was lots of work by friends, many of them in African Enterprise, which helped bring that about. And uh, Michael will be sharing a little bit of that with us this morning. So truly, when God looked at this era at especially the continent of Africa and asked aloud who will be a witness, one of the people that has arisen and been a witness for Jesus Christ, is our guest this morning, Mr. Michael Cassidy. Let's welcome him. Thank you, Bart, very much indeed for your kind introduction. And it is certainly a joy and privilege for my wife Carol and my colleague Edward Mahima and myself to be here with you today. In fact, driving up the coast yesterday reminded me uh, of a time I came to speak at the college back in 1980. I was on some sabbatical and Carol and I and our three little children drove up the coast taking our time. It was so beautiful. We stopped to look at the scenes and the views and the your beautiful ocean. And at one of these pauses, my little boy, Martin, who was then four, he said, Daddy, if we keep stopping like this, we're never going to get to America. <laughs> uh, but anyway, here we are, and thankful to have reached America. And uh, may I just say that in our earlier years, uh, we used to have quite often teams of students from Westmont who used to come and work with us in Africa, either singing groups or others and uh, as interns either for two or three or seven or eight months and uh, bringing their skills and we're still open to doing that we'd love to do that again and have some of you come and be with us and I know Edward needs a communications officer and someone who can write and take some photographs that he could do with and maybe one or other of you here might enjoy uh, an opportunity like that I received, just before I left South Africa, a letter from a little 11-year-old schoolboy in Tennessee. And uh, this is what he said. Dear Mr. Cassidy, what is it like in Africa? Thank you for teaching about God. 
Have a Merry Christmas. If you need help, let me know. <laughs> and so I'm saying to you, yes, we need help for letting you know. And you are surely welcome to come and, uh, and be with us. We do indeed come from Africa and our work is African Enterprise. And uh, we've come to share a little bit about our experiences. And I, was, uh, I asked Bart Tarman yesterday if there had been any topic announced for us. And I was quite relieved when he said, no, you have freedom uh, to say what you like because I've become a little bit suspicious about topics announced in advance after a friend told me a couple of stories of real-life announcements that had been made in advance. I got a couple of these here. One says, next, this was in a church bulletin, next Sunday, Mrs. Vincian will be the soloist for the morning service. The rector will then speak on, it's a terrible experience. <coughs> In an Episcopalian bulletin, it said the rector will preach his farewell sermon next Sunday, after which the choir will sing, Break Forth with Joy. <laughs> and the worst of all actually related to a missionary from Africa, American missionary worked in Africa by the name of Anna Belch. And uh, the bulletin board, when she came back to the United States to share in her home church, said this, Come and hear Anna Belch all the way from Africa. <laughs> But uh, anyway, <laughs> but uh, Tarman told me that uh, you wanted to hear something of our stories and uh, of God's working in our countries. And so I want my colleague Edward Mahima to kick off and tell you something of his own story and that of the much traumatized and also much blessed Uganda. Edward is a preacher. He is a scholar. He's a specialist in Greek and Hebrew and theology with an earned Ph.D., a teacher, a prophet to his land, a writer, a confidant to President Museveni and First Lady Janet Museveni. He's someone the government of Uganda would like to lay their hands on to do their ambassadorial work for them overseas, but he has chosen to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ and a witness for Jesus Christ. And so I present him to you, and after he has shared, I will pick up and share something of how we in South Africa moved from being prisoners of history our apartheid history through to being prisoners of hope. So it's my joy to present to you Dr. Edward Muhima of Kampala, Uganda. Thank you very much, Michael Cassidy, for your kind introduction. When Michael Cassidy introduces me, sometimes I wonder if I am the same person. And I often say to him, I have forgiven him for the kind of introduction that he gives me. And at the same time, I ask God to forgive me for enjoying it very much. <laughs> I come from Uganda. And if you may allow me, I want to tell you a little about Uganda. Uganda, the land of my fathers, one of the most beautiful pieces of creation. And I know it because I have traveled wide, far and wide. I have been as far south as Cape Town and as far north as Alexandria. I have been as far west as Monrovia in Liberia and as far east as Mombasa. I have been in Europe, I have been in Australia, I have been in New Zealand, 
I have been in America. I lived in this country for eight years. And I want you to know my country compares very well with some of the most beautiful pieces of creation. Source of the mighty Nile, the life of Egypt, without which Egypt cannot exist. Host of the second largest lake in the world, Lake Victoria, named after the mighty Queen Victoria, under whom much of Africa was conquered by Britain. Beautiful mountains of the moon, the legendary mountains of the moon called the Renzoris out in western Uganda. Snow capped all year round, in spite of the fact that the equator goes right through Uganda. Up north, we have the legendary Murchison Falls, where the River Nile falls 200 feet down. Green lush all year round. Fertile soil. To the extent that an African-American about three years ago, when he visited the whole of Africa, Uganda inclusive, he came back home and wrote in one of the magazines and said, Uganda is one country where if you planted the tail of a hog, you would see a hog out of the ground next day. Uganda, a country where if you eat a mango and throw the seed anywhere, anywhere, literally anywhere, two years you shall be eating the fruit of that mango. Uganda, a country where you have two crops each year. There is no time when we are not harvesting or planting. That's Uganda, land of my fathers. And yet, my brothers and sisters, as I speak to you, Uganda today, or at least a few years back, could best be described in two words, bleeding and backward. Bleeding and backward. Why? A country so endowed, why should it be bleeding and backward? Well, when President Museven came to power in 1986, he gave his reasons why he thought Uganda was bleeding and backward. And these are the reasons he gave. One, that the previous leaders had not followed a correct political line. Two, that they had not followed a correct economic line. Three, that Uganda did not have a good level of science and technology, such as America has. And four, that in Uganda, we did not have people with managerial capability, that they could not manage even the literal that the colonialists left behind. I listened to him many times, and I agreed with him, but I felt there was something he was missing. And so in 1989, I made an appointment to see him, which he granted. And I said, Mr. President, I agree. I appreciate your reasons for the backwardness and the bleeding of our country. But I said, Mr. President, there is one thing that I think you either forget or you deliberately don't want to bring out. 
And he said, what's that? I said, fifth reason, and in my opinion, the most important reason, we are bleeding and backward because we have not followed a correct moral line. We are morally bankrupt. And I said to him, Mr. President, I believe that actually that's the main reason and that these other reasons you're giving are only symptoms of that. And then he asked me, how do people get morals, Muhima? And I said, Mr. President, just as our motto says, the motto of our nation, for God and my country. And I said, Ugandans must return to God. If they don't, even the things you are prepared to do will be now and void. At that time, Museven didn't agree with me. But today, not only Museven, but also many in the leadership of the country do agree that actually the problem in Uganda is because many Ugandans lack integrity. They lack the right kind of moral ethic. And so you see, my dear friends, a morally broken people can only create broken things. A crippled-minded people can only create a crippled economy such as mine is. And what's the basis? On what grounds? Where is my basis for what I say? Well, listen to me as I read these few verses from the book of Hosea, chapter 4. Hear the word of the land, O people of Israel. And when I'm reading this in Uganda, I insert the word Uganda in the name Israel. And so it would read, Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Uganda. For the Lord has a quarrel with the inhabitants of the land of Uganda. Why? Because there is no faithfulness or kindness, and there is no knowledge of God in the land. Instead, there is swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and are committing adultery, and they break all bounds, and murder follows after murder. Therefore, therefore, therefore the land moans, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and even the fish of the sea, are taken away. Now, friends, if there be verses that describe my country vividly, it's these verses. There is no knowledge of God in the land. And therefore, as a result of that, there is no faithfulness, there is no kindness. Instead, there is swearing. There is lying, there is killing, there is stealing, there is committing adultery. That's why AIDS is spreading like fire in my country. And then, as a result, the land moans. And the people languish. And the beasts of the field and the birds of the air are smuggled out of the country, taken away. Actually, we caught up with some of our birds in Russia not too long ago. 
some of our most beautiful birds were being smuggled into Russia by Ugandans. And so, friends, we must go beyond the symptoms of what we see in the country and look at the base, the cause of the problem. And in conclusion, as I want to give time to my brother Michael to come right on, I want to say this, that if there be any one single obstacle responsible for the backwardness of my country and for the bleeding of my country and indeed for the whole entire of the African continent, and I believe Michael will bear me out on this, if there be any one single obstacle responsible for the failure that we experience on the African continent, it is poor leadership. Poor leadership politically, poor leadership religiously, poor leadership educationally, poor leadership culturally, poor leadership economically, poor leadership in every way. A lack of the right kind of leadership in Africa is responsible for the failures on the African continent. And when you have poor leaders, they mislead the people. When you have blind people, they make blind the rest of the population. And so what's the way out? On August 3rd last year, our president and his wife bought a huge building in Kampala, our capital city, and they gave it to the people of Uganda as a house of prayer. They have now begun to realize that the only way out for Uganda is through prayer. And I was invited on the 3rd of August to come and give a sermon at the dedication service of this building to the people of Uganda. And my belief, my conviction is this, that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. If Uganda is going to get out, out of its demise today, there is no other way. I am convinced there is no other way except to humble themselves, seek the Lord's faith, Pray unto him, and then, and then, he will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and then begin to heal their land. And may I say, my dear friends, that America is great because America is good. But the day America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Thank you indeed, Edward. And uh, 
I must say, friends, that we have learnt in Africa, whether it was in Idi Amin's Uganda in the aftermath, with Milton Obote who killed off 400 or 500,000 people as he liberated Uganda from Idi Amin who had killed off 400,000, including our board uh, chairman and many, many others. Or whether we're talking about genocide in Rwanda where most of our team were slaughtered in the 1994, April 94 genocide. Whether it is apartheid in South Africa, racial injustice, racial hatred, racial bitterness, racial violence. We have learnt a little truth in Africa. It's three words. They come in 1 John 3.20. God is greater. Whatever you take away from the day, I want you to take those words. God is greater. 1 John 3.20. When we say that in Ghana and West Africa, we will say God is greater, and then the people say all the time. And then the speaker says all the time, and the people say God is greater. So I'm going to turn you into West Africans today. I'll say, God is greater, you say all the time. I say all the time, you say, God is greater. So, beloved brothers and sisters, God is greater. All the time. All the time. All the time. That is a truth we want you to really lay hold on today. And certainly for those of us who came out of the South African situation, when we were caught in a historical vortex that had made us a prisoner, in many ways of 350 years of our history, but certainly in the, the, the 50 or so years of apartheid, there were times when we could never see how we could come out from being prisoners of our history, trapped in the past. And yet we laid hold in the early 70s upon a tremendous little scripture, Zechariah 9 verse 10. The returning exiles are told as they go back into Jerusalem, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. And if there is anybody here today, whether it's in your personal life, your family life, your studies, your finances, your personal relationships, your romantic relationships, your work, your whatever, whatever you face, we want you to become today a prisoner of hope and not of your own history. We want you to know that God is greater than anything you are facing. And we saw that in South Africa. And it, in many ways, it was a long process. It climaxed. In just the days before our elections in uh, April 94. But it was a long process. And I want really to try and share with you in telegrammatic form today just some headlines which were the key behind a nation breaking through to a new place. Because we were the write-off situation, the polecat of the world. And I want to give you some stepping stones, as it were, along the way whereby we move from being prisoners of history to prisoners of hope. And the first stepping stone is this. It's prayer to the God who is greater. Tennyson once said, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. And we became convinced that we needed that power of the God who is greater to enter into our situation. And so South Africa became, over those years, in many ways, a nation on its knees. It was almost like a walking prayer meeting for the last uh, year in the run-up to our elections. Because we had called at that time for a chain of prayer going 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 31 days a month for two years, non-stop, day and night. And it wasn't the first time. In 1985, we called the whole nation for what we called a prayer way. We called it on a work day so that, the, that all the wheels of government and of industry would feel the power of the body of Jesus Christ. We called Christians and the whole nation to stay home to pray. 
not on a public holiday or anything like that. And I remember seeing a photograph of the road from Soweto into the central Johannesburg. They called it the busiest road in all of South Africa. And the picture was taken at Russia on that day of prayer. And there was one cyclist. The nation was at home praying. And then we had successive experiences like that culminating in this 1983 call which we were privileged to make to call people to prayer. We called also in those uh, weeks before the elections when South Africa was on the edge of civil war, especially between the Zulus who supported Mandela and the African National Congress and the Zulus who supported Minister Budelezi in the Encarta Freedom Party. And in our area, we were seeing 20 or more people a day dying, 60 or more at the weekends. It was a civil war environment. And certainly it could have broken out into a full-scale civil war. Many people anticipated that that is exactly what would happen. And in the desperation of those times, Nelson Mandela and Minister Budelezi invited the top negotiators of the world into South Africa, led by Henry Kissinger and Lord Carrington, former uh, British Foreign Secretary. And they came into South Africa in, in this atmosphere of prayer. But before they came in, we had brought in a brother from Kenya, a wonderful Christian fellow, political background, an economist, uh, and uh, a person of great wisdom, and we had focused prayer into him day and night. And we had taken him to go and meet with people with whom we had formed uh, uh, deep relationships in the political arena. And it was quite incredible how, as we prayed around that brother, some extraordinary things happened because just in the days prior to this prayer meeting, which we'd called for April 17th, on April 13th, the international mediations collapsed. After less than between 36 and 48 hours, Kissinger said, Armageddon is coming to South Africa. I had a communicated fax message from... Uh, uh, Mr. James Baker, former U.S. Secretary of State, saying the possibility was there of more than a million people dying in South Africa. And Mandela and Budelezi made our friend Washington Akumu an advisor to that process. And I remember when Washington phoned us and he said, the, the mediation has collapsed, everybody is going home tomorrow. Kissinger, Carrington, from all around the world, have abandoned the whole situation. South Africa is a lost cause, Armageddon is around the way, you're going into the abyss and I'm going home to Nairobi as well. And we said, Washington, brother, you can't do that. There's too much prayer invested into, into you and into the whole situation. And you must soldier on now. The elections were for April 26th. And this mediation has collapsed on Wednesday, the 13th of April. Just a matter of a handful of days before that. And we asked Akumu to stay on and to, and to, and to operate this world of network of relationships which we had presented to him that we had got to know many, many politicians in the lead-up to those elections, and we'd had meetings with them. I may have time to share a little bit with you about that just now. But the incredible thing was that uh, uh, Akumu, through those few days from the 13th to the April the 17th, when this prayer meeting was, he worked with some of the leaders, single-handed, with the whole world, just all the news, news, uh, uh, news reporters of the world had come for a ringside seat in South Africa to watch the beginning of the next really great civil war of our century. And uh, this prayer meeting was uh, in many ways right in the middle of all of that for April 17. 30,000 people turned out to pray. And my beloved brothers and sisters, I don't have time to elaborate on this. It's a long story. I've actually written a book about it. 
but the document that was a breakthrough was scrutinized in the VIP lounge of that big rugby stadium with 30,000 people praying. Scrutinized by Mandela's representative, de Klerk's representative, uh, and Butelezi himself. And out from the prayer meeting, these leaders called their principals, Mandela on the one hand, de Klerk on the other. Butelezi flew back immediately from the prayer meeting to meet with his party. And, uh, and right out from the prayer meeting came this document that became the basis 48 hours later of the breakthrough in the South African elections. Peace spread out over the country when it was announced on April 19th. The word miracle was used in editorial after editorial after editorial. One newspaper said the day God stepped in to save South Africa. Uh, the, the Wall Street Journal had an article, God and Politics, and that's quite something for the Wall Street Journal. Time magazine said history has thrown up an authentic miracle. In the British Parliament, they said if there are miracles in politics, this is one. And what I want to say to you, my dear friends, is as peace came across South Africa and we had elections in the three most peaceful days, some people said, in 350 years of our history, in our area of the country, which was a sort of a capital of the crime of the country, there was not a single crime of any sort in the three days of those elections. And peace spread out across South Africa as we came through in this incredible transition. But what, dear friends, I want to say to you today is that the real key, the key stepping stone to a sit, to moving from, from, from the one position of being a prisoner of history to a prisoner of hope is prayer. It's true whether it's Bosnia, true whether it's Rwanda, it's true whether it's Northern Ireland, and we've got deeply involved in getting a similar two-year prayer chain going in Northern Ireland. And we've said to the people in Northern Ireland, if you win it upstairs, in the spirit of Ephesians 6, where the principalities and powers operate, you'll see all the effects starting downstairs. And I think in Northern Ireland now you're seeing the downstairs effect of this two-year chain of prayer getting underway there, going 24 hours a day, and the 7,000 intercessors linking in Northern Ireland along the lines of the South African example. So prayer. The second great stepping stone is what I would call keeping eyes on the prize. I met a man a number of years ago, Mr. Vincent, Dr. Vincent Harding, an African-American professor, great historian of the American Civil Rights Movement. And his book is called Keep Your Eyes on the Prize, and we took that on. We needing to get every society needs to have a vision of what it really wants to be. And we got a vision of a non-racial democracy with peace and justice and prosperity for all in South Africa. And as Christians, we committed ourselves to pursuing that, and that God in his own miraculous way would bring that forth. Then another really key stepping stone, a third stepping stone, is what I call heeding the word of the prophets. Every country raises up prophets. Every, the church in every country raises up prophets. And my beloved friends, I want to tell you, if a country does not listen to its prophets, then it is in really, really serious situation. And if the church doesn't produce the prophets, then every church will get the country it deserves. If, there, if, if the church is not salt to arrest decay, if the church is not light to dispel darkness, you will get a society that is decayed and is dark. I don't know who all the prophets are in the United States. But I want to tell you, I think Chuck Colson and people like him are amongst them. Their word needs to be heeded, or who knows where you may go. Beloved young people, professors, faculty, you are the leaders of the world. Do you know that? 
Have you registered that? Have you registered that what goes out on your television, what goes out on CNN, which is the single most powerful influence in Africa today, what goes out through your soap operas, your movies, your television, your tabloid magazines, the whole world is buying. So be careful how you lead. And that's why it's important for you, as for us, to heed the word of the prophets. In South Africa, we had many great prophets. People like Trevor Huddleston, Ambrose Reeves, Joost de Blanc, and in the more recent years, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Alan Busak, Frank Ciccani, and numbers of others. One great, very important prophetic word, I may say, came in our country in 1986, when the Dutch Reformed Church, which had historically been legitimizing apartheid and saying it was okay from a biblical perspective, decided, no, they'd got it wrong, apartheid is a sin. And I'm sure you all know of the sanctions pressures of the cultural boycotts, the sports boycotts in South Africa. I'm not saying they had no place. But the most powerful thing of all was when the Dutch Reformed Church said to the government, apartheid is a sin. That pulled the moral and theological skids out from under the system. And that was what led de Klerk, in my view, to say, no, the thing is wrong. We've got to normalize our society. And we've got to release and unban the liberation movements, all the parties, including the Communist Party. And we've got to release the, bring the exiles back and release Dr. Nelson Mandela. And so it was really the word from the church again and again and again into the society which was decisive. A, another stepping stone which I would mention to you is what I call the pursuit of togetherness. There was in the body of Christ a great pursuit of finding one another across all the barriers. Sometimes the barriers were race, obviously, most of the time. But often in the church, the barriers were also denominational. And we had to get away from the view, you know, that says that my denomination is the, has the, all the exclusive truth. No one else has any truth. We are everything. You know, like the Episcopalian and the Baptist who were having an argument. Being an Episcopalian myself, I can tell the story. Episcopalian and the Baptist having a violent argument about the respective merits of their different denominations. Till finally they almost came to blows. Then the Episcopalian said to the Baptist, he said, you know, I don't know what it is we're all fighting about. Because he said, after all, we're all doing the Lord's work. You in your way, and we in his. <laughs> we had to repent of that. We had to really work on finding one another in the body of Christ. And in our own work in African Enterprise, we had the privilege of calling in the last quarter of a century the major ecumenical gatherings in South Africa that brought together the whole body of Christ from left to right and center. And that was very, very important because it began to give us a testimony to the state, all sectors of the state, the current government when it was de Klerk or P.W. Boerter, the liberation movements. And then even now there is a necessity, even prophetically, to continue to speak to the new African National Congress government. And so it's terribly important that in the body of Christ we find one another, we're together and we speak with some uh, uh, clarity and out of our togetherness. And to model out that togetherness that needs, needs to be seen in the body of Christ. Also the As believers in the church, we facilitated the business community coming together. 
And there was facilitation of, of many other political sectors coming together. And in our own work, we had the privilege of bringing together in, uh, throughout 1993 dialogue weekends for politicians. And we would call politicians away into the bush to a game lodge between 15 and 20 at a time, heads of parties, members of, members of parliament, from the Communist Party to, uh, and, and the group whose slogan was One Settler, One Bullet, all the way through to the white groups who were saying, give us a million guns. And we sat and we shared our stories. And we, we, we shared our autobiographies. What had made each of us us and our histories. And you know there's nothing so marvelous as when you understand another person's history and their background. You may not come to agree with why they are like they are, but, but at least you understand it. I remember the, the, the deputy head of the One Settler, One Bullet party who was there. And that same week they had blown up a whole bunch of white people in a, in a sports club. And they came to our weekend with blood dripping on them. You can imagine the top government leaders on the white side who were there and the tension. And this one fellow, and we've continued to be very good friends with him. I've become his, was with him just a few weeks ago in Coventry in England. And he told us how he was 25 years on, on Robin Island with Nelson Mandela. And uh, how the waters made him dig one day a hole six feet deep, made him climb in it, filled it with sand right up to his neck, and then urinated on him. And we whites said to ourselves, I know I said to myself, if that had happened to me, I would say, one settler, one bullet, for sure. And again and again, whether it was conservative Afrikaners, whether it was a Butelezi crowd, whether it was a government, whether it was a communist party, we shared our stories. And meantime, we had the intercessors praying 24 hours a day, focusing in on these groups. And people came away with an awesome network of relationships. And my beloved brothers and sisters, that was what we handed Washington Akumu when he came in in those days before the elections, actually two to three weeks before the elections, we were working with him on three separate trips and we handed him this network of relationships and we activated those relationships forged in Jesus Christ across these extraordinary barriers. And it was those relationships activated that brought forth the miracle of our change and our transformation. Just a couple of other things before I close. Another of the stepping stones, I'm not quite sure where I'm at, must be number five or something like that, was a willingness to confess, repent, and forgive. There's no way you can make progress in situations without forgiveness. The other day on an aeroplane flying from Entebbe, Uganda, to Ndola, Zambia, and down to South Africa, I led to the Lord a young Rwandese woman who had had 60 of her relatives killed. Her mother, father, nine brothers and sisters, her fiancé, and 50 others. I led her to Christ, and in Jesus she has been able to forgive. In South Africa, we found that the, the black people have the most incredible capacity to forgive. And you need to have confession, and it came from whites, thankfully, from the clerk, from government ministers, from many others, a confession and a repentance and manifested in the releasing of these, all the political movements and the great 27-year prisoner himself. And then forgiveness. And Mandela has manifested most uniquely and specially the spirit of forgiveness. 
to come out from 27 years in prison and at your inauguration you make the fellow who was literally your jailer present at the inauguration the, the, the prison warder who was who, who was Nelson's jailer he invited to the inauguration then he made the head of the government that had imprisoned him he made vice president and I could give you other illustrations of the spirit of this great man but there's no way through to, to, to new situations without confession repentance and forgiveness and so as I just close I want to say to you that we have seen and saw in our country a mighty miracle of the living God in history I can never ever again think that any situation personal private marital financial social national continental no situation can defeat this God who is greater and so beloved I want you to just say it with me once again God is greater all the time the Lord bless you and please believe it Amen